This is Brain Fuzz, the art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. Joe and Matthew joined curator Sarah Higgins along with a live audience at the Zuckerman Museum of Art. They discuss curation, titles, books, and William Burroughs. The audience shares questions. Joe provides the audio pick of the day. Jim Henson gets quoted. This is episode 23. So this is the first time we've done this with a live audience. And we're on a trip with uh, some uh, arts patrons supporting Burnaway. And we're at the Zuckerman Museum of Art on the campus of Kennesaw State University. And we're talking with Sarah Higgins. We've, we've seen some work here today, but we're going to talk more about you and your path and how you found where you are. We always find it fascinating to see like curators, like how you get to this point. And I know you have deep roots in the Atlanta community, uh, Atlanta College of Art, and you know, a sculpture and printmaking background, mm-hmm. all the way to, I mean, I'm stealing your whole bio here, uh, to you know, curatorial studies. That's a fascinating path. You know, did it, uh, and how, how did that happen? How do you go from sculpture and printmaking? Well, you know, I, I quote I quote Jim Henson a lot, <laughs> and there <laughs> and there's a, this Jim Henson quote that I really love, um, where he's you know he's being asked about how he became a puppeteer, and he's like, I don't think anyone would ever set out to be a puppeteer. You know, nobody, I, I, certainly at the time, you know, and of course Jim Henson changed that because of Jim Henson. I think people did then want to grow up and be puppeteers, but but for him, you know, it was at a time when that wasn't a path. And for me, similarly, you know, unless you happen to grow up in, you know, a family of collectors or deeply embedded in a kind of art community, you wouldn't necessarily say, I want to be a curator when I grow up. I mean, you wouldn't have known that that existed. It it wasn't known to me, certainly, as an option. And because I grew up in a really rural place, um, it was in Camden County, Georgia, so uh, my address was like rural Route 1, Camden County, Georgia. and, you know, dirt roads, marshland. And uh, if you were interested in art in a place like that, everybody just was like, oh, you're an artist, um, which mm-hmm. was true. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't not true. It was just one avenue that you could pursue towards art. And it took me a really long time to learn that there were other ways to be involved and to be passionate about art. So I went to art school because I didn't know what else I was suited for. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And, uh, and I didn't even really know that there were art colleges until I was like a junior in high school. And somebody was like, well, you should go to art school. And I was like, what? Tell me more about this art school. So I came to the Atlanta College of Art and studied primarily focused on sculpture and printmaking. Um, I was really into sculpture, and then I met the printmaking faculty, which was at the time was like Norman Wagner and Robert Dedimore and um, and Wayne Klein, and I just they stole me away from sculpture um, with their enthusiasm, and and we just kind of I just really connected with them, and but what I really liked I think was tools. I really liked you know having like drawing and painting were way too direct for me. I like to have equipment. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> And so, uh, so yeah, so I, I, I went to art school, um, as you do when you're from the country and you're into art. 
and, and you're not very skilled at anything else. But I, but I always loved writing. And before I became like the art kid, I was the writing kid who, you know, applied for like essay contests yeah. and I, you know, was like the, I was the little bratty winner of all the essay contests before I became like the hooligan art kid. Um, and, and so in a funny way, you know, there was like the, the, the stage was set for that. And I loved crits. It, really, my favorite part of art school wasn't making the work. It was the critique days. You know, I loved thinking about other people's work and discovering it and, and kind of trying to dig deep into it and, you know, and, and then receiving that from others as well. Like that, I loved it. So, you know, in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense when you put those it things really together. It really does, yeah. Um, you know, that, that visual art kind of took the place of writing for me and then, uh, you know, critique was my favorite part of visual art. And so, you know, fast forward a few years and I discovered that curators exist. But, you know, I, I lived in New York and worked as a, uh, I did an apprenticeship and, and worked as an editioning printer in a Intaglio Press doing printing for artists. Like I, I did a, um, a lot of printing for Emma Amos while I was there. And, and actually a, a print that I printed was just hanging in the Georgia Museum when I went to visit. And I saw it and was like, I did that edition. I know that oh, wow. I know that print. You know, yeah. like I had my hands on that. Yeah. And and so, you know, I'm still really connected. And that's part of why the Zuckerman having the Southern Graphics Council International collection of prints is like close to home wow. for me. Yeah. So yeah, and then I, I moved to San Antonio and I mean I always had to work. And so I worked for galleries and I worked for an art dealer and uh, and I, I saw a lot of different sides of the art world just trying to pay the bills. And when I lived in San Antonio, I worked at, um, at ArtPace as one of their educators for a short time and wow. really, really learned a lot about how to talk about contemporary art specifically to audiences that may be encountering it for the first time. And I also worked for an art dealer in New York who just liked me and he was kind of crazy and I don't think he got employees that, that could hang with his crazy very often, and so he kept me around as long as he could and would fly me back up to New York to work the fairs. And hang with crazy. He was intense. <laughs> um, you know, intense but I was... New Yorkers. I mean, he would, like, yeah. scream at me about things, and he was just the kind of guy that was like, no, you're ruining it, and where are my glasses? And they'd be on his head, and I would just be like, have another cup of coffee, dude. You know, like, we just... I think I treated him the way his daughters did, and that really felt comfortable for him. Yeah. Um, he was fantastic, and he would, you know, and I'd be like, I quit, and I'd leave and go, like, stand around the corner and wait for him to call my cell phone and be like, have you gone yet home yet? Be like, no, I'm just around the corner hanging out, but I, I still quit. Just, well, I got you a muffin if you come back. <laughs> if you come back, I, <laughs> I think we can work it out. And I'd be like, all right, Steve, you know, you're my way. Dysfunctional, wonderful person. Um, and so he would fly me back sometimes. And then I also started working for a commercial gallery as the sort of gallery assistant girl. And, um, you know, so I was working all the time and and really got a lot of experience during those short two years in San Antonio. Um, but then I moved to uh, Florida and got a job really luckily at the Atlantic Center for the Arts, which is an artist-in-residence, multidisciplinary artist-in-residence community um, with a community arts sort of hub that's in the downtown of New Smyrna Beach, Florida. The artist-in-residence program is out on this nature preserve, and it's fantastic and gorgeous and very much about retreat and research and development and mentorship and 
it's a fabulous place that's really still very close to my heart. And I worked at managing their community arts program and being curator of their regional gallery. And that was just how I came to curatorial practice. Like suddenly it was part of my job description and I didn't really know that much about it. Did you feel that you turned the act of making off? I think it just shifted into a different mode. Yeah. You know, um, my final sort of gesture as an artist was I had my first solo exhibition in San Antonio right before moving to Florida. Yeah. And I really discovered in the process of having a solo how much I, I loved working towards the exhibition and thinking about the exhibition as the finished thing, not so much the different works that I was making, but but like thinking of each work as like a sentence in a paragraph or a story that I was telling with the exhibition. That's a distinction that's so important, and I and I hear I hear so much confusion about what it is to be a curator. I mean, people don't really understand. If you're outside of the arts community, you don't really understand what it is to be a curator. Mm-hmm. And that, that's interesting to hear that. That is That distinction is so important. Well, and what I've learned now that I've been working as a curator for, oh gosh, 10 years, um, is that there are as many different ways to be a curator as there are ways to be an artist. Yeah. And there are as many ways to function as a curator as there are institutions that have them. And so it's... Uh, I think unfortunate that sometimes curators get kind of like thought of as this monolithic thing, you know, that they, they do things a certain way. They are a kind of person or they have a certain function. And there's so many different ways, especially in contemporary art to be a curator. Do you think that changed with like the rock star, like Klaus Biesenbach kind of thing? Do you think that's like fading now and people are just like back to like doing the best work they can do. Do you do Instagram posts out your window every day? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think a lot of people follow my Instagram thinking it's going to be more interesting than it is. And, oh, then, really? it's like, and then they're like, oh, pictures of our cat. <laughs> the cats, yeah, right. they're trending. Cats rule Instagram. <laughs> I, try, I try to have some restraint about my cat. But, um, but you know, uh, I mean, I think that there's, there's a whole history of the curator that is parallel to the rise of exhibition history. And the sort of, you know, the rise of the sort of like superstar auteur curator of biennials, you know, that happened. And then, and then the figure of the curator got kind of like solidified in this certain way of thinking about it. And I think that, you know, what's happened is that that sort of, that type of curator certainly still exists. And it's, it's a path that a curator can kind of try to take. But it's no more the reality as, as it would be to say, like, look at an artist like Jeff Koons and say, Hughes Koons is an example so much, um, in, a, in a variety of ways. But, you know, to say, like, oh, that's what an artist is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to say, uh, oh, you know, um, you know, Matthew Barney, that's what an artist looks like. And, and that's one really sort of, like, you know, crazy top of the pyramid, super, you know, whatever chip is higher than blue chip, you know, like there's, there's a way to function at that very top in a certain way that has becomes a kind of cult of personality in a way. But then there's all these different ways to be those things. You know, you can, you can be a curator who has absolutely no interest in that side of things. And, and most of the curators I know are, you know, somewhere in between the kind of like, you know, super grassrootsy apartment gallery kind of person and, and that crazy top. You know, You're thing. right. There's a passion for that moment when the show comes together and, and that it's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
so the so the writing has always been there. Because um, I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of all that goes in to, to putting an exhibition together, like where do the ideas really come from? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, do you have yeah. like pages of, of thoughts of future exhibitions? Kind of. I mean, I think for me, or, I'm the kind of curator that wants the ideas to come from the artists. And so okay. I'm, I'm more interested in like thinking about, uh, I, you know, I have m- many more pages of notes dedicated to notes about artists that I'm really interested in, um, you know, and thinking about connections between them and other artists, connections between trends that I see in, in a group of artists and things that I observe culturally, things that I think that... Um, connect the ideas that inform the artist's work to the ideas that people who aren't artists are kind of trying to think about or grappling with or, or you know, feeling all the time. Um, and and I, because that's where I think, like, an exhibition lives, in the connection between things that an artist or group of artists are thinking about and things that everybody else is thinking about and and when the artists are thinking about it in a way that they can maybe offer some avenue of, of, of thinking to people who maybe have these ideas latent in their day-to-day lives already. Um, and that can be, you know, encouraging them to think about it at all or encouraging them to think about it differently or encouraging them to think about it in a way that helps them to see that their position is one position among many. Uh, that are all wrapped up in the same kind of moment of experience. And so, you know, for me, the ideas come from the art, and then I try to think, what can I bring to this? What can I bring to this that will help uh, both the artist see their work in an interesting and, and if not new, then maybe kind of expanded way? And and what can I bring to this that will help people who maybe don't think like artists at all? Mm-hmm find that common ground and have a conversation. Yeah, I mean, because I think that's a very tricky job in terms of mounting an exhibition, and I'm thinking even for some that have been through the arts industrial complex, you know, it's still saying, <laughs> what's going on here? Am I missing something? I need some wall text or... Uh, yeah. uh, I don't always know, you know? And sometimes I get kind of lazy, and I forget that you got to, like, take a minute and think because I think, oh, I'm so trained, I should be able to get this right away. But that's not always the case, and sometimes I have to still kind of go back to the skills that I was teaching kids at Art Pace and say, what's familiar here? You know, what do I recognize? And then what's been changed about what I recognize? And, and what might that be trying to communicate to me? Now, there's also an academic piece of this that we're, we haven't talked about yet. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, after being a... a a curator of a regional gallery and the manager of community arts programs in a small town in Florida, I went to graduate school for curatorial studies at one of the most sort of uh, notoriously theoretical programs in the world for that. Um, And that was weird because I had never really read any of that stuff. Um, I, I wasn't like a theory head, you know, I wasn't... I was interested in philosophy, but I was actually much more interested in, like, poetry. And so I um, I just, you know, I, I applied to this program. I didn't think I would get in. I don't think anybody ever thinks they're going to get into that program, um, except people who don't. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, so, yeah, so I went to um, Bard College has a uh, graduate program in curatorial studies called the Center for Curatorial Studies, and it's a two-year MA program um, that I went to uh, that takes on a lot, often the identity of the director. And so I was, I was there under the, the directorship of uh, Johanna Burton, who is now at the New Museum. It was a, a, in, an incredible education that I, I draw on every single day, both in a, in a way where I lean on what I gained there, but, but where I also then also try to unlearn what I learned there. You know, um, I have this push and pull dynamic between. So you pay that two. kind of money. Well, the federal government paid that kind of money. Okay, I'm, I'm working then, on that now. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then you go through the unlearning program. Well, I mean, the unlearning, I think, isn't so much a rejection of what I gained there. Right. As much as it is a remembering not to treat it like a prosthetic limb that I lean on all the time. You know, um, I just try to try to be flexible, try to kind of have a light touch with, with what yeah. I gained there and to always keep it in perspective and, you know, and, and remember that what makes sense when you're thinking about these things in this kind of laboratory setting, uh -huh, right? You uh -huh. know, like, like when you test something in a super clean environment, that doesn't always work the same way as when you get out in the real world and it's, it's not clean and people are walking around and it's dirty and messy and you can't control anything. Um, you know, there's, there's a difference there. And so it's, it's less about unlearning. Because, it's like digesting or just absorbing. Yeah, just, I, mean, I think it's uh, yeah, similar. Remembering, yeah, to apply it instead of rely on it. It's good to be able to push away from things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think most creative folks are working from some form of restraint. Yeah. Otherwise, there's just too many options. It's so <laughs> open-ended and there's so much ambiguity. Yeah. It's something to... I mean, I got an incredible education I there. I, I, I've always said that I, I got everything that I wanted to get from that program, except for some things that, instead of gaining them, um, the program kind of revealed to be phantoms. Um, and that experience of learning that these answers that I thought existed actually don't exist. Okay, well, give me an example. Well, like a right way to do things. Okay, yeah. Like I right. thought that there was some yeah. right way yeah. that, that the people who were really successful at this, like some secret yeah. they knew, some, some secret handshake that they were going to teach me if I just asked it the right way. And then I started to realize, like, no, everybody's just... It's just a bunch of fancy nerds living their lives. <laughs> fancy nerds. Like trying to do their thing and, you know, trying to be interesting or trying to be whatever it is that they value. And, you do know. Do you think it's also like validation or approval? Because that, that's come up in a lot of discussions, like especially in the grad school type uh, scenario of uh, maybe people thinking that they're going to have a committee that's going to tell them, no, you really shouldn't stick with the, you know, the stuffed animals and the mylar balloons instead of, yeah. instead of them like, oh, I don't know, uh, yeah, just keep playing with that and I'll be back yeah. in two weeks. I mean, I'm, that's the thing. You should eat something. <laughs> Anytime anyone tells you what you should do with a creative endeavor, they're just telling you how they would do it. Right, and that, I, I think yeah. some people want that or think that yeah, school's going to be it, that. But and you realize, like, oh, man, we're all kind of out on this limb. Like, all right, let's see if I can they, I had a build really, some kind of framework. I, I mean, I came in, 
I came in that student that was like, no, I want practical training. You know, like I want, I want you guys to teach me how to do this because I feel like I don't know how to do it right. And they were kind of like, look, you know, you don't need us to teach you how to fill out a loan form, you know, like, or, or yeah. to even create one, yeah. you know, yeah. like we're, yeah. you know, don't, don't ask us to give you things that you can get for yourself. Ask us for the things that you can't get. Yeah. And, and what those things turned out to be were different than what I thought they would be. Is this the time to throw the quote at her? Oh, God, there's a quote that you're going to spring on me? Uh, I wasn't going to necessarily read the whole quote. Okay. Oh. But Please there, do. Um, there was a, you know, David Sally had a book uh, published recently, How to See. Here's, here's, we've got it. For your yeah, I need edification. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the quick. He says, and this is David Sally from the book How to See. Uh, whatever your expectations about the world you're poised to enter, the simple truth is this. Nobody is waiting for you to take a seat at the table of esteemed creators. Nobody's even waiting for you to take your place at the table of studio assistants. <laughs> no one's waiting, period. You'll go from an environment where people regularly respond to what you do and who you are to a world where your calls probably won't be returned. There's likely to be no echo at all. That's just adulthood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can you can map that onto the art world. You can map that onto any field. Yeah. You know, that there's a moment where you realize that all of these structures that you thought were there to bother you were actually there to support you, and now they're done. And you have to support yourself. You know, and you have to advocate for yourself because all of those people were being paid to advocate for you. And maybe sometimes they genuinely saw something in you, you know, yeah. and maybe sometimes they really wanted to support you. But that's a privilege. And, and that's just a little taste of what it takes to earn that kind of support once you're out. And those people aren't, you know, the people that you're in a world with are just looking out for themselves. And I mean, I think I, mean, I think a lot of times people in the arts like look around at, at the art world and they say, oh, the art world's like this. But. But if you zoom out, it's like the world is like that, you know? Yeah, that's true. I just want to jump to titles. And I mean, because I think titles can be very elusive, and we're getting to how the shows come together. Mm. Uh, One of my professors at the Center for Curatorial Studies, this guy, Tirdad Zolgadar, um, was really, really good at titles. Like, all of his classes had really great titles. All of his lectures had really great titles. Like... Every, he never he spared no expense when it came to titling things. It was always, even if it was just a little, like I'm giving a guest lecture in this class next door to the class I always teach, I'm still going to give it this like killer title. <laughs> wow, he was just always great. flexing that muscle. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm not I'm not one of those really. I mean I've been I feel like I get lucky right at the last moment with titles. Like I'll have some awful working title for things. Do you keep running like lists of titles or? I tend to to build a thing from its parts. And then once it's built, look at and, and try to look and see what I've made. Um, uh, but um, yeah, gosh, so like my last exhibition here um, was called Gut Feelings. Um, that was a great show. Thank you. I, I loved that show. I'm I loved telling making you, this it. was something. Um, it, that I was really stressing out because 
you know, because the deadlines for titles are way... So, you know, if you work this way where you're building a thing, right, and then you want to title it in response to what you've built, but the problem is that you actually have to title it way before you've actually seen the thing, right? And so uh, that's hard for me. And the title gut feelings came to me while I was driving on my substantial commute, um, which is not unlike shower time. Yeah, yeah. You know, like commute time, I'm trying to cultivate it being yeah. like shower time where you're like, like, oh, all the ideas yeah. come right now while I can't write them down, but they still come now. And so that, yeah, and I almost drove off the road. Like I, I was yeah. just like, good feelings, ah, you know. Um, well, with the advent of self-driving bathrooms, we may <laughs> soon have the self-driving. Oh, that's true. That would, that would, think about what that, how that would impact your work. Civilization is going to make this like enormous leap forward. <laughs> yeah. Just because right. just of that. having our hands yeah. freed up during these times. Um, yeah, I, uh, that tends to be how it happens. Like I'm under the gun to come up with like, the title, they needed it yesterday. I don't have a good idea. Every time I try to think about it, I draw a blank and then like, boom, there it is. And so I've been, that's why I say I'm like, just, I just get lucky. (laughs) Um, but like, uh, the erasure poem thing, um, I've always, anytime I've ever deinstalled a block of vinyl text, like, so we're sitting in the ZMA atrium and there's a a block of vinyl Mm -hmm. text. Like when I take that text down, it's kind of dull work, you know, your face is right up against the wall and you're kind of doing this fiddly thing. Try not to cut yourself. Yeah. And you're just trying to, you know, it takes longer than you kind of want it to. And, uh, so I got in the habit whenever I would do that of, um, of taking the, the letters down to make these little erasure kind of poems out of the text. And, um, and you documented these, I hope. I've never documented, never documented oh. them until recently, uh, because of Instagram. So it's like, oh, bloop, you know, Instagram picture. I mean, I may have, I may be able to go back and find photos. Of so it's ones, that and cats, pretty much, on your Instagram. Is pretty much, yeah. Okay. It's like, it, uh, I know I'm trying to be better, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, uh, it was just sort of this absent-minded thing that I would do to entertain myself, and and I'm interested in poetry, and you know. Um, and it's got the burrows kind of cut up. Yeah, totally. Type thing. I mean, uh, but I never take it that seriously. You know, it's just this. And that's probably why it's great. Yeah. You're, right. you're, well, they're not all great. Well, I mean, some of them are but, super stupid. Sometimes it's like I'm just going to leave all the O's. You know, like it's not always <laughs> thoughtful or good. But the one that I did for the gut feelings text, I was really happy with. And probably paid a little more attention to what I was doing because I was processing that this was my first big sort of... I mean, I've done a... a, I've worked on the summer exhibition last year, the A View Beyond the Trees. um, And and I also did the print collection show that was up at the same time as Gut Feelings. But Gut Feelings was really my first thing where, like, the ZMA said, show us who you are as a curator. Um... And so I was really close to that exhibition, and taking that vinyl down was felt heavy. It felt symbolic, like I was, I don't know, like taking off my makeup after a performance or something, you know. And I, I wrote that text, and I really loved the text that I wrote for the wall. And I, I was maybe trying to draw it out a little bit or get one last moment of gratification from the process of deinstalling that exhibition. And so I, I thought a little more about it, and it came out good enough that I felt okay sharing it. I shared it on Instagram, and then... Um, and now you're famous. 
No, it's no. <laughs> <laughs> and then the book deals started coming in. <laughs> moving to Soho. Uh, I, I, I guess I like this notion that it's almost like this in this age of everything being sustainable and but like recycling, like it all goes into the stew of of, of the exhibition or the art making. Because I mean, I mm -hmm. tend to try to work that way. It's hard. I, t for me, titles are extremely difficult. And if you're working abstractly, like that's probably the best thing you can do is have a really killer title that gives mm -hmm. somebody a hint of mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And then I get, get the hell out of the way. But um, and to me, I guess I'm constantly trying to think of like, maybe it's right in front of me mm -hmm. instead of always having to reinvent and start from scratch. You know, whether it's a visual problem I'm dealing with or a title or trying to write a text. Mm -hmm. It's like get out of your way, and like to me, that was such a liberating um, concept. You know, just thinking of like, wow. I mean, I write down how many you know paragraphs or phrases of words, and it's just interesting to try to link them mm -hmm. and think maybe it does apply. The the reference to the bros cut up is a is an apt one. I mean, I I, I wasn't doing that or sort of erasure thing, and you know, with any intent of it being a finished thing, but. Um, but I think that like anytime you can kind of allow yourself to work in a space where um, where there's some sort of element that alleviates your mind's constant remorse in choosing over all the things that go unchosen. Um, you can, Why'd you pick that? Wow. Yeah. You know, like because that's what's hard about titling. You're, you're closing everything. down all those possibilities, you know? It's, it's like to name a thing is to, to, I don't know, set it on its path and, and in a direction, you know? I think um, it's an intellectual hoarding. <laughs> intellectual totally, hoarding? In a way. Difficulty titling, <laughs> uh, yeah. totally. Or, or like... Indecision I'm as hoarding. We had, a, <laughs> we had our therapy episode recently. Yeah. It was all about anxiety. Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking about it. I think it's... Uh, oh, man, I If I have too. to put an exhibition together, like, it's really hard for me to come... You know, when it probably should be four things, I'm still going to show up with, like, ten. And then just slowly yeah. pry myself away. But anyway. Mm -hmm. um, are there... On a, you know, we're going through text and, and that sort of thing. But um, so you're a reader and a thinker. Are there are there books that you think every artist should have? No. None. No. I love the idea of a world where every artist has a completely different library from everyone else. That's didn't expect that answer. That's great. Yeah, I mean, like, I find that. your things. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. and and I mean, I and I think that like the best libraries that I've encountered um, don't necessarily, they're not, it's not about like, oh, I recognize all of these titles. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's like the, the libraries where I'm just like, oh my God, what is this crazy conglomeration of weirdness? I love it. The conglomeration of weirdness. And I mean, I, I, I'm a book person, you know, I've, I've moved a lot in my life and it's impressive how many books I've managed to argue with whatever partner I was moving with at the time <laughs> like no no we really have to keep these books um, and uh, it's a commitment yeah and, and the, there are books in that in that library of mine that I don't think some of the most important ones aren't the ones that you would look at and say like oh I see you've read a lot of Nietzsche you know like yeah. it's it's like yeah I've got that stuff but I I mean, some of the most important books to me are 
poetry books, um, some children's books that have been really like a thing always. Um, some books that um, that I go back to aren't there. It's you know, it's not like Maria Lenz' writings on curatorial practice. It's it's like um, this random fiction book that I read when I was 14 that yeah. somehow connected to who I was as a yeah. person in a way that I go back to a lot like and you know so like I'd love to see everybody have libraries that are full of those things sure. you mm-hmm. know so before we open it up for additional questions I don't know if you've heard about these guys artstie.com artstie.com they, they are the largest site for jobs in, uh, in the arts and it's free for job seekers you know, whether you're looking for an arts-related job or posting arts-related jobs, you should check out artstie.com. I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen this before. It's hard enough to find. It, you know, you have your networks and you have your um, little oddball bulletin boards here and there, but at Artstie, they really have done a good job of um, jobs feeds and then sorting and filtering the jobs. It's, uh, you, don't see it, you don't see it in the arts usually, and they've got it right. Artstie.com, A-R-T-S-T-I-E.com. I have a question about the yeah. sponsor. Do they post jobs all over the country? Or yes. Or is it regional? Yes. All over the country? All over the country. Awesome. All over the country. So I'm glad to know about that sponsor. I feel a little... Right? I feel a little ashamed I didn't already. And now... The Brain Fuzz Audio Pick of the Day. I'm, I'm amazed I didn't think of this, but uh, there's a musician named, a musician named Steve Gunn, who okay. is an amazing guitarist, and uh, he had a record, this came out last year, um, 2016, on the fabulous Matador label, um, Eyes on the Lines, and it's just, it's a beautiful record, he's an amazing guitar player, largely plays with his fingers, um, the music is very contemplative and meditative without being boring um there's kind of an eastern thing droning modal without getting into like jam band hell yeah yeah it's not that but his there's just kind of this theme in both the music and in the lyrics of just exploring and wandering and getting yourself lost and i've been obsessed with the notion of of being lost mm-hmm. in in life and in my work and in some books that i've read and it's just kind of been and it's just been a, it's been a good companion record um there's a lot of um talk of like travel and transition and um and this is somebody who's been like a journeyman musician out of philly he's played with kurt vile for a yeah. long time uh kind of in that whole war on drugs uh the uh, violators circle. yeah 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 and uh time off uh was my gateway into him 2013 and it was just a three-piece but it's just like really amazing musicianship without it going overboard it didn't get into like bad like 70s prog prog rock or jazz kind of thing um, so definitely worth a listen. And, it is so easy to drift into that too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Did you? Uh, so that's my. Have you heard Steve Gunn? I have. That's great. I'm not super well versed, but I have. I, he I, played like, the Earl recently, and of course, or Eddie's Attic, right I down saw the street from me. And guess what? Of course, like I was, you know, probably drawing or something <laughs> in my notebook <laughs> with, with a ruler. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so that's the audio pick, audio pick of the day. It's a now. That's a question. Fine one. Questions for our for our yeah. curator. Oh, oh, here we go. With a question wrapped in it, which is I hear both you saying that naming um, gut feelings 
is freeing, it's liberating because you're kind of on a path. But uh, I hear, I think, it may be a chicken and the egg thing, is it some quite constraining that, okay, this is gut feelings, so I've got to make it gut feelings. And do you ever feel that, or is it, am I just imagining that there would be any conflict with that? So just to repeat the question in case it, 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 the audio isn't good, is it constraining to title? Or freeing. Or free. Because I heard both. I mean, I think it, it, it can be both. And the goal is to have a title that it that is constraining in a productive way, mm-hmm. where the, the constraining that it does is helpful to the visitors to the exhibition to give them a starting point by, you know, by narrowing that experience down to something that is... Um, you know, con- constrained enough that you can see the edges of it mm-hmm. and you can see intention in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then hopefully it's something that you, you know, by looking at the exhibition or reading the thing or listening to the thing or whatever it is you're naming, you know, that that title starts to, starts out kind of constraining in a helpful way and then starts to open up and expand and become more nuanced. And, um, And so I think a good title does that. It starts out constraining, and then it expands and becomes flexible. Or a window to get into. Totally, yeah. Totally. You know, one um, role of an artist is storytelling, right? Maybe a principal role. And it seems to me that storytelling drifts away as you move away from the written word. So, So I'm involved with the Atlanta Symphony and our musicians themselves as storytellers. Mm-hmm. But it's hard if you're playing a Mendelssohn piano concerto to get a story out of it unless a curator helps you. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder what you view the role of the curator is in helping tell at least a view of the artist's story. Mm-hmm. It may not be all views, but it's with a collection, or is there a thematic story to tell with a collection of artists? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it depends a lot. It's a very case-by-case thing, and it's an incredible responsibility that I take very seriously. And I think some curators don't take that up at all right. and, and don't really see that as their role. And, and they may be working in a mode uh, of production where it wouldn't even be appropriate. But, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm working at a museum at a university, and so that's a particular kind of... Um, kind of space of exhibition making, you know, it's, we're in an academic space, it's a space of learning and education, um, and so, you know, telling a story, it has a different kind of space held for it here, and so that's really good, because I, I for me, because I also like to do that. Um, you know, when I do a thematic exhibition, for me, the theme I mean, you could think of, you know, people make all kinds of analogies about this stuff. You could think of it like a book of short stories, or you could think of it as, you know, um, as a collection. I mean, often, like, the role of the curator is kind of editorial in a lot of ways, um, and in some really literal ways. But, uh, you know, I think that, for me, the responsibility is to learn as much as I can about the story that the artist is trying to tell, if that's the way that they work. Um, and to make sure that that the the frame of the thematic exhibition, the work that it's placed alongside of um, the wall label, however I'm writing about it, um, always 
is super responsive to the intentions of the artist, but hopefully, at it, when it works well, adds something that maybe the artist needed an outside view to discover, not only about their story and their work, but about you know what other things have to offer. Um, you know what the the other work in the exhibition has to offer, what the exhibition context has, and one of the great things about you know being a curator at an institution is you get to know your audience, and so you can think a lot about what you know about the people that are going to be in that space, and and so you can kind of mediate the story for the people that you know are going to be there to to experience it. At best, I mean, sometimes it, it could, I mean, it's certainly sometimes crash and burn, but, uh, you know, and sometimes uh, it's, sometimes an artist isn't interested in telling a story, and then you have to help the viewers understand what they're looking at. I think an artist is always interested, and maybe part of the curator's job to extract them. Yeah, to, to find what they're trying to communicate. No, yeah, no, I can see that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, I think that artists are always trying to communicate something. Um, I guess I just mean that sometimes it doesn't take the shape of a, like a story, or and that's harder. A thought, a yeah, like sometimes it's interpretation. Yeah, sometimes it's like a kind of like a nexus of references coming together to create something. The intent of the piece. Yeah, and and that's can be harder to to do that kind of communication through. Yes. Yeah, this is our first uh, visit to the ZNA. It's been very exciting. Awesome, welcome. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what you're excited about over the next 12 months that's going to be appearing on the walls? I'm excited about everything. <laughs> so, uh, so a few things are going to stay the same. Uh, over the next 12 months, the Tory Tensley mural that's on our project wall along the staircase, that's going to stay the same. That'll be up for the rest of, you know, we're kind of on an academic year. And so that will be up until the end of the spring semester. And we are, everything else is going to change. We're changing everything else that you see around you. So there's going to be, in the next 12 months, Medium, which is an exhibition that's been co-curated by Teresa Bramlett-Reeves, who is our senior curator, and Justin Rabideau, who's our director. They've been working on this exhibition for a couple of years, and it's going to be an exploration of ideas around mediumship, haunting, ghosts, and how artists have taken that sort of terrain of cultural reference and and utilized it either in really literal ways or in kind of symbolic ways to talk about, you know, the things we can't access and the things that stick around in spite of us maybe trying to let them go. And there's a bunch of wonderful artists in that exhibition, some local regional people, some national and internationally renowned artists. Um, there's going to be a really elaborate Carrie Mae Weems um, video installation that I, I mentioned earlier that we're thrilled to be able to take on um, as part of an exhibition that also has archival materials and, and goes into history. It's, it's going to be really, it's going to take up both of our exhibition spaces and also because it's a project that I'm involved with, but not directly one of the curators for, um, you know, I've taken a supporting role here and there, but I get to kind of experience it as, as a viewer, which is exciting for me. Um, and then in the spring, we're going to have two side-by-side solo exhibitions, and they're going to be the first solos that the ZMA has done. So that's exciting institutionally, 
because it, it it really makes a different kind of statement about the kinds of artists that we're interested in supporting at what moment in their career. You know, the solos, you can tell a lot about a museum by the solos that they put on. And, uh, and those are going to be... Um, I'm working with an artist named Tamashi Jackson, who's um, based in kind of New York, Massachusetts, and Teresa is going to be working with uh, Atlanta-based artist Sarah Emerson, and so uh, we'll have these two side-by-side solos that don't really necessarily have a lot to do with each other, but I think a dialogue is going to emerge there too that'll be really productive. Um, and then we're also reinstalling the Zuckerman Pavilion. And that's where we um, highlight works of uh, Ruth Zuckerman, and and you know she makes up a, a significant portion of our collection. And so uh, we're going to do a really kind of radical redesign of not only the space and how we're presenting the works, but how we're thinking about presenting a collection. And uh, and I'll let that one be a little bit of a of a teaser. Cool. Well, it, it's just, we've said this, we've discussed this before. It's a great space, and I, I love visiting. Thank awesome. you so much, Sarah. Thank you for taking your time. Oh, yeah, thank time you for having me. And, and our esteemed guests. Thank, thank you. Thank Thanks, thank audience. Thank you to the group. This is like Prairie Home Companion just, or something. Yeah. We need, like, <laughs> well, we have, yeah, we I should have done some vaudeville between <laughs> yeah. bits. So, <laughs> but we, we're on to our next stop here in just a few moments, and she's joining us for the day. uh, Connect with Joe and Matthew and find out more about this and other episodes at BrainFuzzPodcast.com. On social media, share your thoughts and comments with hashtag BrainFuzzPodcast. Now, get out there and engage in the dialogue.